Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast, or the Benjamin A. Boyce YouTube channel. And I want you to know, if you're just listening to this, that I have videos of all my interviews. And if you are watching this, I have podcasts of all my interviews that can be found at the Boyce of Reason through whatever podcast app or platform you enjoy the most. Today's interview is with King Crocoduck, who is a fellow YouTuber with almost 90,000 subscribers. So if you guys don't know about him, you should go over there and check out his stuff, especially his series titled The Science Wars. Absolutely brilliantly put together and excellently argued, which goes to say he's arguing for science and against different cultural tides that are trying to erode science uh, in different ways. Also of note, a couple weeks ago, he published an article titled Woke Fragility under the pseudonym I. Karamazov, and he published that on Medium, and that also is linked in the description. Woke Fragility is an excellent uh, kind of pastiche of Robin D'Angelo's concept of white fragility. And in my estimation, King Crocoduck's Woke Fragility actually makes more sense as a useful rubric of understanding the cultural milieu that is occurring right now than does Robin D'Angelo's highly racialized, one might even argue, highly racist screed, white fragility. So I found that article and we connected and I wanted to showcase his brilliant mind on my channel. This mind of his is incredibly scientifically oriented, but he still has a very deep respect for the domains that are outside of science, being morality and culture. I'm sure that your politics and his might not completely align, but it's always great to be exposed to something that is differently oriented or oriented in such a fashion that you do agree with, but might be thinking through things at a more deeper, more logical level. So without further ado, here is King Crocoduck. Really liked your woke fragility. That absolutely brilliant absolutely brilliant uh thank construct you. that you did do you want I'm to talk actually, about that to begin with yeah I'm, I'm actually thinking about developing it into a book uh, why not what um, what what inspired you to what was the like process of coming to that idea was it kind of like a flash of inspiration or well, for you know, for years and years, I've been parroting this stuff um, mm -hmm. privately, yeah. not not necessarily on on my YouTube videos, but certainly in other YouTube live streams and, and comment sections and things like that. You know, this woke ideology, it it it, it has a very basic template that anyone can copy, and mm -hmm. you know, it, it needs to have this template because of intersectionality. Intersectionality, as you know, probably um, pertains to all of these different identity groups, and they all have to be marching to not necessarily the same tune, but a tune that rhymes. Um, mm. So you you have this basic uh, master-slave uh, Hegelian uh, dynamic that's set up. You know, you have men oppressing women, whites oppressing blacks, straights oppressing gays, on and on mm. and on. Mm. And you have the same kind of story being told over and over and over. Um, you have this marginalized group that doesn't get to be the, the author of its own identity. They're alienated from their identity because the dominant group um, has imposed this false consciousness on them in order to subjugate and oppress them and exploit them. And uh, identity politics, this whole game of identity politics, is the process of reclaiming authorship over that identity by coming mm -hmm. into conflict with the oppressor group. 
this is basically the the template and all of the um all, all of the language all of the uh all of the organs of, of the theory of wokeness so to speak the grand unified theory of wokeness yeah. um they can be transplanted into any one of these causes whether it's lgbt causes uh racial causes feminist causes it, it's the same story um so and, and this is by design. Mm. So I, you can you can take advantage of this. You can exploit the fact that uh, there's this common story being told. You can take that story and you can start filling it out with your own cast of characters. Yeah. And you, and the you know you can you can take their story and flip it on its head. What you have to understand about these things is. Uh, they're not really receptive to evidence. I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You went through the evergreen debacle personally. Yeah. Um, but these these worldviews are not responsive to evidence. The conclusions exist independently of what the evidence is. Okay. Um, and white fragility theory is is probably the best example of this I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> it's pretty egregious, isn't it? She just went all the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I I think she must have at least some understanding of what she's doing, uh, mm. for for a number of reasons. But you know, whenever whenever I'm confronted by somebody who really believes in this white fragility nonsense, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I bring up as a point of comparison Freud's Oedipal complex, and mm. it's an interesting point of comparison because the Oedipal complex, as as you probably know, um. You know, Freud, he was a coke-fueled nutjob who thought that the psychosexual development of boys um, was fashioned by this repressed sexual lust for their own mothers. Um, you know, Freud had mommy issues. Um, and basically, this was the explanation for everything um, in, in, in somebody who's afflicted with this. Everything that happens in their life can be explained to by their Oedipal complex. You know, yeah. conflict with their father, they're jealous that their dad has sex with their mother. Conflict with their mother, this is uh, romantic conflict. Yeah, it causes confusion and, and blah, blah, blah. So here's the thing about the Oedipal complex. There's no escape. Um, you know, let's say, for, for example, somebody were to enter into a Freudian's office and this person... Uh, had married a woman who in some way resembled his own mother, right? Yeah. Maybe she looks vaguely like her, uh, like his mother. Maybe this woman uh, has a personality trait that reminds him of his mother. Okay, that's a clear manifestation of the Oedipal complex, according to the therapist. But then suppose another patient walks into the office, and this one uh, marries a woman who in no way resembles his mother. You know, completely different personality, looks completely different. Well... Uh, what does the therapist say at that point? The Freudian is going to say, aha, you see, this person is going to such lengths to repress his Oedipal complex. Mm. This is a clear example of reaction formation, and so is still a manifestation of the Oedipal complex. And yeah. so like a two-sided coin with Freud's cigar filleting face on both sides, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is. Everybody has the Oedipal complex. Yeah, and, and defiance is built in to the argument, yes. or I guess to the narrative, perhaps. Yes, yes, exactly. It okay. it doesn't matter what the evidence is. The conclusion is always going to be constant. This is not a theory um, whose whose conclusions are accountable to our senses. Hmm. And 
do you, is this like uh, you're comparing these two things, edible complex and white fragility? Is there is there like a abstracted pattern of this, like some sort of like uh, conceptual understanding of these types of arguments or complexes or narratives or I guess loosely said theories? Uh, where yeah, they're the word, immune the, to evidence and then they have a bunch of denial built into it. The, the word you're looking for is non-falsifiability. Okay. So and why why is that so bad? Well, non-falsifiability is not a property of anything other than dogma. Um, okay. You know, it, we 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 live in a world where we have an imperfect understanding of it. You know, this is something, as, as a scientist, I'm confronted with all the time. Um, and if we're going to be able to approximately, you know, approximately understand how the world works, we have to develop theories. And we're constantly developing theories. Um, you know, even if you're not a scientist, you're, you're developing theories. Um, you have some notion of... You know, your your senses are being your 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 mind is being bombarded, right? Your five senses are processing information, but that information isn't just you know, it, it's not just hitting you in bundles. You know, when you walk through a forest, you're not just being bombarded with with these disorganized smells and and tastes and and sights and things, right? It's being organized in a certain fashion so that when you walk through a forest, you're not seeing greens and and browns and grays. You're seeing rocks. You're seeing uh, trees. You're seeing squirrels. Mm-hmm. Your mind is playing a constructive role in organizing that information, yeah. and it does it in a certain way um, so as to give you predictive and explanatory power so that you can navigate the world and function within it. Um, okay. You know, we, we, uh, so a non-falsifiable theory is a theory where it doesn't really matter what your senses are bombarded with. It doesn't matter what the input is. Uh, you still have the same model. This, the, the the model doesn't respond to new information. Um, this kind of this kind of model is best avoided because this is the kind of model that turns a person into a traffic hazard. Uh, you know, they're walking down the street, a bunch of cars are moving past them. Well, you know, uh, this is this is all just in my mind. I'm imagining the cars. Um, well, somebody else says, "Well, look, I I see the cars too." Well, you're imagining it too. You know, they'll have some excuse. And they walk through the middle of the street, and they turn into a pancake, right? Mm-hmm. The, this this is this is hyperbole, but as a, as a general principle, it illustrates why um, non-falsifiable theories are are kind of crap. You can see yeah. this, you know, it's it's a property of a lot of bad theories. Um, astrology, for instance. Uh, don't mm-hmm. don't tell Carlin I said that. Uh, okay. <laughs> Wait, George or or uh, Barisenko? Barisenko. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, you I, I I do this with my students sometimes. Um, there's this psychological phenomenon called the Barnum effect, where if you take a, a series of statements that seem to apply to pretty much anybody, um, you know, I, there's an entire list. I can actually look that up right now. Barnum effect. So this is kind so, of like loosely some form of showmanship, or yes, that's where yes. the name comes from. The, yeah. Right, right. So here, here's a list of items. Um, one, you have a great need for other people to like and admire you. Two, you have a tendency to be critical of yourself. Three, you have a great deal of unused capacity, which you have not turned to your advantage. 
Four, while you have some personality weaknesses, you are generally able to compensate for them, and on and on and on. Very, very general statements that are not that, that are sufficiently general to apply to pretty much everybody, but not so general as to be completely vague. So, okay. what I do with my students sometimes is I'll tell them, okay, uh, you know, this is when I'm teaching an astronomy class, and I want to hammer in the point that uh, astrology is is due to. Um, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them, all right, class, um, I sent your personal information, just your names and your birthdays, uh, to this professional organization that does horoscopes. So I'm going to be passing out these envelopes um, showing your astrological profile. Uh, please don't look at your neighbor's uh, papers, you know, respect their privacy. Just look at these, put them back in the envelopes. And then uh, I'm going to call out some numbers on a scale of one through five. Uh, how impressed are you? with what uh, the profile says. And typically I get something uh, about four, you know, fairly impressed. And then I tell them, okay, you know what? Screw each other's privacies. Why don't you trade with your neighbor and see what they got? And it's all it's all that same list. It's all that same Barnum list. And the yeah. moral of the story is this, with, with, with what's called uh, cold reading, uh, this is something psychics use. It's the same kind of Barnum showmanship. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and of course... Uh, you know, astrologists will always have some explanation, some excuse as to, as to why um, this kind of thing happens. Anytime an astrological prediction bleh, prediction fails, there's always going to be some reinterpretation of it. You know, the prediction is just general enough to apply to anybody and just flexible enough to be molded into whatever conclusion they want it to fit after yeah. the fact. Yeah, there's, there's some, it feels as though there's, I'm sorry, I'm using the word feel in this conversation about facts. I, I feel we're, we're, we're heading towards facts, but it feels as though human beings uh, dwell in that kind of theoretical space, that theory generating space, that, that space of kind of uh, storytelling and plausibility um, in order, you know, to, to kind of um, like emulating some sort of uh, standing above phenomena, like, like, like you're participating in the order of the world. It, it feels as though that's kind of a, a reflex of you know wanting to be empowered over phenomena on on some level, mm-hmm. which is why it's so attractive. So in in your life and in, in you know becoming a scientist, did you do you have to constantly uh, or do scientists in general or does science in general have to constantly be editing itself from going along this line of entering into theory making that. Um, starts to construct these non-falsifiable claims about things. Yeah, and absolutely. How, and, and what are the tools to kind of constantly stop that from happening? That's a good question. So, uh, so one good conceptual tool is to explicitly um, set out what the predictions of the model are. You know, what should be the state of affairs if the model is true? And um, the contrapositive as well, you have to set out what are called counterfactuals. What uh, should not be the case if the model is true. If these things are the case, the model is not true. And then you run an experiment and you see, um, you know, uh, now, of course, this is, this is a bit of a simplification. Um, it, it is possible. There's theories are still flexible enough to have enough wiggle room. Um, you know, the falsifiability is not, not the only consideration at play. Um, but it, it, it is an important one. Um, fundamentally, the theories do have to be accountable to our senses, and if there okay. are compo- there are if there are components of the theories that are independently not accountable to our senses, so you can have something in a theory that is not in and of itself. Um, 
you know, directly observable, like mental states in psychology or the wave okay. function in quantum mechanics. They, they still have to have consequences that manifest in the real world, and those consequences uh, have to be delineated fairly clearly. Yeah. If you, you know, if, 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 if you adopt the attitude of the soothsayer and just, uh, you know, mold, mold the prediction to whatever conclusion you want, um, you know, you're not going to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At least not if you're a real scientist. So how do you falsify that which is unfalsifiable? I guess parody is one of the ways that you do it. When we began speaking about your essay, Woke Fragility, what you're doing is kind of just taking Robin DiAngelo's uh, theory and just reinterpreting it by basically plugging in different integers. And it makes it... Your woke fragility is actually more true to me than white fragility because it actually like it lines up more and more, and you're making more and more sense out of the tools that you're playing with than than I uh, I, I see that Robin's uh, making tools with. But how do you falsify that which is unfalsifiable, or how do you prove that it's not wrong if it guards itself from being proved not wrong? You you don't you you have to point out that it's non falsifiable, and you have to explain why non falsifiability is a property of dogmatism you know okay. you you have you have to when you're dealing with somebody uh, who believes in all of this nonsense you, you have to get to a point where you ask them you know is your worldview responsive to evidence and if the answer is no then there's there's simply no conversation to be had they're just dogmatists okay. but if okay. the answer is yes um you know non-falsifiability as a property of theories is, is something that has to be avoided now, most people on the street, you talk to them, um, you know, the, the, you sit them down for an intellectual conversation. They, they don't have time. They don't uh, – they're not mm. interested in, you know, philosophy of science and, and how beliefs are formed and things like that. They just want to get on with their day. Yeah. So yeah. the other approach is to do what I did and make a satire. Um, yeah. You know, find the weak point in this, this theory. Uh, in this case, it's non-falsifiability and exploit that. Uh, to demonstrate, hey, look, I can play these stupid games too. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. where, where 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 does a concept like white fragility uh, lead us? It, it goes nowhere. It's just manipulative rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in in a certain respect, what I've tried to do <clears throat> with the Evergreen documentary is to prove that Robin DiAngelo's et al's ideas have consequences, and the consequences are bad for society. So I don't know if they're true. It doesn't matter if they're true or false uh, with regards to me just laying out the evidence. What happened is that these ideas were implemented, were taken as dogma, and then this was the output. So I don't that's a form of evidence making, um, I guess, against the claims that it's going to lead to a utopia, but I don't, I don't remember Robin DiAngelo ever explicitly stating what her end goal is for white fragility yeah you have to read between the lines um mm. i think it's fairly clear when you read through the book um she is not interested in uh, gradual reform uh she's a revolutionary she thinks that the institutions need to be fundamentally upended uh, and replaced mm. with, with with something utopian uh and of course she and like-minded people are going to be the ones at, at the mast head yeah yeah. And that is, I, I'm going to guess, deeply offensive to you? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't believe, um, how do I put this? I don't yeah. believe 
in centralized planners of society. I, I know these are these are very uh, Hayekian terms, and that, that's not intentional. You know, I don't mean this just necessarily in the economic sense, or even ex- explicitly in the economic sense. I mean, you know, people who are deciding uh, on everybody else's behalf what direction society goes in. And this seems antithetical um, to the democratic spirit. And on the other side, they're going to say, well, you know, people are stupid or they're bigoted. They need to be socialized in a certain way in order to uh, be trained to vote and believe certain things. And, you know, there's there's something inherently demeaning about viewing people as in need of training, in need of socialization of this sort. You know, it it shows me that that people like D'Angelo who look to re-socialize people don't see people as beings with with agency and free will they they look at them the way that pavlov looked at his dogs Hmm. yeah and there is something dehumanizing and offensive about that to me do you think that that is a gradual process of uh being liberated from a state of ignorance like do do you think that a kid uh set in their own, you know, to their own devices will eventually, like, uh, you know, uh, want to learn science on their own? Is there not some form of socialization that should happen? And how do you gradually navigate that without becoming a a social constructionist uh, when you're dealing with society as a whole? That's a good question. And, And how you answer this question is what differentiates a person with a liberal mindset from someone with an illiberal mindset. Um, and the liberal answer to this question is you recognize that people have a private critical capacity to reflect on the good. You know, they have the ability to privately and critically reflect on what is right, what is wrong. So you teach them, you, you, you give them certain conceptual tools. And of course, some amount of socialization has to come in play to the extent that it's necessary to have them sit down and learn. You know, they can't be running around and you know, <laughs> peeing in the corner. Like you, you, yeah. there is some some training that has to go, and that's fine. Um, you know, just just for for basic functioning in society for, for for the purposes of that. But when you get to higher order thinking, you you can't train them to reach certain conclusions. Um, the very best you can do is to give them these conceptual tools, and you know, let them practice with it on a number of issues, and. Uh, Inevitably, you're going to end up with a plurality of opinions. You know, there are different characters. There are different, um, you know, different personalities. Some personalities are stronger than others. Some people are motivated more by this passion than that passion. So they're going to be more inclined to this conclusion than to that conclusion. Um, They're going to reason in different ways. But uh, the, the, the end goal should be the cultivation of the spirit of thinking about things and evaluating them. Uh, to the best of your ability, instead of reaching this preordained conclusion by the high priests of society. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the case that the humanities, broadly speaking, in America at this point in time are suffering a crisis. And I wonder if you would agree or disagree with this, that it was led here by the an inherent weakness of pluralism uh, against an authoritarian regime. It seems that critical race theory, intersectionality, etc., postmodernism, whatever you want to like actually label it, it, is preying upon a weak society where a lot of people were just kind of thinking on their own, and now they're being unified by you know this one kind of uh, mind virus that's sweeping through academia and other. <clears throat> uh, 
parts of uh, you know the the culture generating machines. Yes. So this this is the critique that's leveled against liberalism by both the left and the right. Liberalism has this weak spot. Its its toleration is its great weakness. Yes. Um, and uh, the answer to this objection is it's it's this is its weakness um, only to the extent that you uh, destroy toleration. Um, so there's this thing called the, the paradox of toleration by Karl yeah. Popper, who also spoke a lot about falsifiability. And you'll see this on Twitter a lot. People have this little cartoon about the paradox of toleration, um, and they get it completely ass backwards. So <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, according, according to them, Karl Popper in The Open Society and His Enemies, which is a great book, by the way, I recommend it to everyone. Um, they think that Popper is recommending that people who have intolerant ideologies, that is to say ideologies that do not tolerate certain groups of people, they're racist, they're sexist, whatever, those mm-hmm. should not be tolerated, otherwise we're going to be destroyed by those ideologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Karl Popper was actually talking about was intolerant ideologies in the sense that ideologies that don't tolerate the, ex- the coexistence with other ideologies, that don't yes. tolerate pluralism. Uh, those are the ideologies that need to be cast out. Okay, so how do you how do you uh, formulate that then? Because uh, every ideology is going to be intolerant in some respect. Is there like some some sort of uh, you know libertine uh, floor? Like you can believe whatever you want, but you can't enforce that on somebody else. Like what's the 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 guiding principle of knowing when you're interacting with a ideology that doesn't want to coexist with other ideologies. The rejection of ideological pluralism. And what form does that take? I guess, uh, if you can describe that, I think that's what we're facing now, but um, how, how do you, how do you sniff that out yourself? Um, well, they're going to be fairly clear about it with their language. Um, they're going to say, you know, and and even if they're not, um, they're going to make use of. You're familiar with with how you boil a frog, right? You throw it in mm-hmm. room temperature water, raise it by yeah. one degree, yeah, and then eventually, the frog doesn't know it's boiling, and by then it's too late. Um, so that that this latter boiling the frog strategy is what's been enacted. So I want to I want to address both. First, the okay. clear one is fairly straightforward. If somebody says this ideology should not be expressed. Uh, it should never be uh, touched. Um, it should never be dealt with. We, we should we should we should just you know banish everyone who even we suspect of possibly having this ideology uh, instead of meeting them in argument. You know this kind of person. Um, this is this is this person would 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 uh, fall under the rubric of anti pluralism. Okay, but then you so you ex- deal with- exile is a valid strategy of winning then. Um. Um, not necessarily. Not, not necessarily. You, you don't necessarily have to exile them, um, but you you do make use of of typical social conventions associated with praise and blame. You praise people who tolerate their ideological opponents, and you blame you shame people um, who don't. Okay. Yeah. And through this kind of social pressure, um, you know, ideally, you you maintain this kind of equilibrium that allows this pluralistic playing field to remain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the trouble, the trouble really happens when they're slowly boiling the frog. When they start out with seemingly uncontroversial things, you know, we want people to have affordable health care. Um, we want 
you know, what's, what's a vanilla way of, of saying what they want? We want equal rights. We want uh, people, you know, we want we want the um, the abuse of power to be held to account. Well, okay, look at the ideology. How do they define things like power? How do they define things like abuse? How do they, uh, when they say affordable health care, what strategies are they willing to tolerate in pursuit of that? Are, are they willing to tolerate open market strategies in pursuit of that? <clears throat> or is everybody... Uh, who advocates an open market uh, policy in service of affordable health care, um, unpersoned, you know. Okay. You, so this this is where – this is why SJWs uh, are so slippery and so easily able to infiltrate into our institutions. They take advantage of everybody's best intentions and yes. they betray them. Slowly. Mm-hmm. With paper cuts in a way. Yes, yes. So with this – with these kind of people – um, you basically do what you've been doing. Um, you have to expose what the ideology is really about, what the unspoken premises are. You have to divorce the public relations space of the ideology. You know what? Uh, are you familiar with the term modern Bailey? Yeah, yeah. But why don't you explain it for those who don't? I will, but I always get the two confused. Is the one on the inside <laughs> the mod, or is it the one on the inside the Bailey? I think the mod is up up the hill. I think, I think it's it, it it's Mott and Bailey, and I think that the problem I have with it is that usually the picture shows the Mott on the right side, but the the way that we write our language, it's on the left side. So I think the Mott is up high and the Bailey's down low. Okay, I'll put a graph in, in, and we might both be wrong. We'll find out. Okay, so let's just call it the inner part and the outer part. Yeah, the the inner part is the one that is easy to defend uh this is the uh this is the one that uh you know it's it's heavily reinforced um you know if if, if an enemy comes through they're not getting into the into the inner one and then you have the outer one i believe it's the bailey uh and this outer hopefully bailey i hope i'm not screwing this up uh is not so easy to defend so when somebody comes to attack the Bailey, you retreat into the mod. And yeah. it's basically within the within the context of these kind of discussions, it's a type of bait and switch. You have your yeah. uh, easy to defend public relations space of the ideology. That's the outer part, your Bailey. And then when um, – sorry, <laughs> I, I'm getting it completely backwards. <laughs> the public relations space is the easily defended inner part. It's the mode. And – the more difficult to defend outer part, the part that you retreat from, is yeah. what the ideology really is, what the unspoken premises are, the unpalatable ones yeah. that people are like, not going kill to kill all men or I guess uh, one interesting one. This might be a bad example, but I've seen it, it's really current where uh, defending uh, a proper uh, property is not worth more than a life. Therefore, you know, it's OK to destroy f- property if you're trying to save lives. So so um, criticizing people destroying property is of a greater is probably the wrong uh kind of the wrong strategy but it seems like a justification for you know destroying or, property or or take a particularly pernicious one discrimination is bad when it's done in service of racism discrimination is morally necessary in service of anti-racism that yeah. is particularly nasty to me and california oh, wow. is facing an upcoming bill to inscribe that into law yeah um and wait, hold on, pause uh, one moment. So they're not just trying to get rid of anti-discrimination; they're 
or non-discrimination, let's say. They're actually trying to implement anti-discrimination being the discrimination in the service of, of uh, non-discrimination. It, it's exactly as Orwellian as you just put it. Okay, yeah, which is f- – uh, well, at least California is doing it and the, not the federal government. Um, at least we have that. For now. Being. We'll see <laughs> yeah. what happens in November. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> So um, I guess we kind of got lost in the weeds, but well, that's these are these are all um, Bailey positions. These are difficult to defend on their face. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you confront somebody on this, they're going to retreat into the mod. They're going to retreat to the more defensible position. We just want equality. Why do you hate equality? You know, why do you hate Black Lives Matter? Don't you think that Black Lives Matter? And yeah, of course, you can yeah. retort, "Why do you hate the Patriot Act? Are you not a patriot?" Mm. Uh, why do why do you hate the American Family Association? This is a hate group that uh, that is against gay people. You know, do, aren't okay. you in favor of American families? You know, we can play this game yeah. too. Again, yeah. whenever you can use satire, do that is the sh- that is the sharpest tool in your toolkit. Um, but yeah, in in order well, to. Uh, and in, in most people to, don't understand how satire works. That's the problem. That that relies on education or something. We have to like you. You can't only just do satire, but you have to actually teach people an appreciation for satire. In a way, that, I would. That's I would true. Argue. That's true. That's true. Um, but but getting back to this boiling frog thing, in order yeah. to move the public from the Bailey, or sorry, from the moat position to the Bailey position, from the easily defendable position to the more difficult. Uh, position. You have to do it gradually. You can't do it quickly. You can't do it overnight. You have to you have to engage in the slow march through the institutions and have them very gradually crank up the temperature until everybody is boiling and by then it's too late. Mm. Um, okay, let's just take 2020 for uh, an example of that. It seems that the temperature has gotten to a boiling point, but I don't think that it's sustainable. I do not think that the ideas that, um, you know, kind of uh, work inside of social justice activism, the extremist, postmodernist, existentialist, I don't, I think that they, they aspire to a utopia, but at a critical juncture, they always fall apart. And we're watching that action of it falling apart. I, I don't get, do you think that it can continually um, march through the institutions? Well, I, I don't think it's completely collapsed just yet. I, I, I think we will yeah. know the collapse when we see it. And I have a few ideas as to how that might happen looking forward. But I do think something did very important happen this year. And that was they raised the temperature too quickly. People started to notice the boil. And now frogs are jumping out of the pot oh, okay. with yeah. hashtag walk away. Um, yeah. with, with, you know, you, you look at C-SPAN, you can find nine... Uh, minutes worth of video of Democrats calling in saying, yeah, uh, I've had enough. Enough is enough. I'm voting for Trump. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, we'll see in November uh, whether yeah. this hypothesis is right. I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think I think people are catching on. OK. And if they, if they don't see that, um, where, where do you think the proponents of this ideology will go? Do you think that they have the capacity to adapt? Because I, I put a very reactive statement on my Twitter because I was just fed up with what I was seeing. And I said that I hope that the Democrats lose tremendously. I just hope that they get totally wrecked so that they can like really examine what they're doing, how they're going through things. And one comment to that 
was that well they didn't learn in 2016 they didn't learn when Trump got elected so what what do you what do you project the proponents of this will do if they don't get their way in November which would be well, uh, we, electing a weak candidate that they can control well we know for a fact that they're going to riot that's a given okay. um, they're not yeah. going to accept the legitimacy of the election until another investigation has gone through and even then they'll probably not believe it still. Um, you know, what happened in 2016, Trump won by a very narrow margin. Um, he didn't win the popular vote. Uh, they weren't, they weren't playing for the popular vote. They were playing for electorates, but most people don't understand how politics work in this country. So they think that this wasn't legitimate. And you combine this with this Russia conspiracy theory, um, you know, some, some boomer tier memes that Russian bot accounts shared won Donald Trump the election or, Uh, the fact that uh, we had this WikiLeaks uh, stuff come out and that this painted Clinton in a bad light. Um, and I'm, I'm still confused as to why uh, this is a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. WikiLeaks did us a service. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people people thought that there was no way that this was this was legitimate. You know, there, there there's this cabal of Trumpists out there somewhere. <laughs> Uh, aided by Russian bots and the 400 pound hacker who controls them all (laughs) and (laughs) the, the, the hacker known as 4chan and you know, but, but if you have a real landslide victory this November, I think then they might finally be quiet and start considering, you know what, uh, maybe, maybe it's, it's time to clean house and think very carefully about where we went wrong. And at that point you can expect to see basically uh, a massive uh, rush for power. There's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be a vacuum of power where the neoliberal wing of the Democrats once sat, and you're going to have all of these different groups that are fighting each other in order to uh, mm. try to tr- try to arrive at a seat of power. And maybe the end result will be uh, something that is better than what came before. Maybe it'll be worse. Maybe it'll be something that looks better on paper, but is still just resetting the temperature, and, and they're going to start the boil again until next time we'll we'll get them. Um, so only time will tell. I do think that if there's a landslide victory, you'll see major change. Uh, if there isn't, if it's a narrow victory, and there's a lot of room for people to doubt the legitimacy of the election, uh, there uh, the, the the change may be a little bit slower to come. Uh, I think. A lot of a lot more people are going to they, they might continue radicalizing even further and a lot more people might end up leaving the Democratic Party and it might just uh, collapse under its own weight. It'll become yeah. an ideological singularity as more and more people are purged. Um, and then there is always the possibility that Biden will win. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a remote possibility, but, you know, it's, it's possible it can happen. And if he does, um, then I think they're only going to. Uh, get worse, um, I think. In what way? It, it won't be riots that time. Or maybe a little bit, but that won't be the crux of the matter. Yeah, I, I think you can expect there will still be riots. Um, you know, every time, inevitably, a police officer uh, makes a mistake, or inevitably, when a police officer appears to make a mistake, but is actually mm-hmm. doing the right thing, but because you only, you only have a few minutes of... of context from or even a few seconds of context from a shaky video camera you know people 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 of a certain kind are going to find any excuse they can to loot and riot and do whatever i mean these anarchists these these communists they 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 don't recognize the legitimacy 
of civil society. Uh, mm-hmm. So they will take every opportunity to smash it to pieces. Um, but I think I think the most frightening thing will be uh, the institutional uh, ramifications of a Biden win. You're going to see, you know, you're seeing a lot of proposals right now for education systems that are teaching critical race theory in the classroom, even as, as young as at the kindergarten level. Yes. Uh, and anti-racism, uh, quote unquote, anti-racism in reality, pro, uh, you know, pro-discrimination uh, yeah. type of materials being yeah, aimed. Yeah, being aimed at toddlers, you know, really trying to train these Pavlovian little dogs into being good uh, comrades eventually. Yeah. Do you, do you think that that would work? I mean, do you think that critical race theory uh, is strong enough in its, uh, you know, nexus of uh, statements to uh, allow for a child to completely grow up in it? Or what do you think the outcome of that? Somebody who's a society that's stamped from birth by that. Uh, what well, do you think the outcome of that will be? Look, every generation is going to have people who conform to the ideology of their parents and their authority figures and uh, people who rebel. Um, so you're going to have this mix of, of culture and counterculture. And it's just going to be uh, an extended struggle. Um, you know, even if we do end up completely thrashing the critical race theorists and the intersectionalists and all of this other stuff, there's still going to be some countercultural production Um Inevitably, this, this is just the way people are. There's always going to be a plurality of ideologies. You know, people just have different characters. They have different life experiences. They're going to gravitate toward different ideologies. Um, so it, ultimately, the balance of power is going to go to whoever, uh, whatever whatever group, whatever coalition manages, uh, A, to argue its case the best, but B, also to present its ethos the best. Um, present present its moral character the best in a manner that is palatable to as many people as possible. And what what constitutes that then? What constitute? And we're, we're not. This is no longer a scientific conversation when we start to talk about morality. Or do you think that it is? Do you think that um, you know, logical, falsifiable morality can uh, persuade the masses? Well. I, I don't know about that. I, I, I do think that uh, there is something to be said about um, uh, the philosophy of morality uh, being its own separate autonomous ent- entity from scientific activity. Um, but when you persuade people with moral reasoning, um, you know, Jonathan Haidt uh, mm-hmm. talked about this with, with, with this really good metaphor of the elephant and the rider. Um, you have to talk to people's elephants. You know, you have you have this beautiful frontal part of our brain that has is responsible for all the conscious and rational decision making, and then you have the rest of, of our brain uh, that came that that came billions of years or sorry, <laughs> hundreds of millions of years yeah. <laughs> before the rest of us did, um, and you know one of these is going to have a bit more purchase than the other, even if one of these thinks that it's in charge of the other. So. Uh, you have to talk to both. You can't just appeal to emotion. There has to be reels, um, but you can't uh, you yeah. can't divorce feels from the conversation entirely yeah. either. Because yeah. the the reality is, people just don't respond completely to reels. You have to talk to their feels as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in your perspective, 
how would you divvy up what Robin D'Angelo and uh, Kendi are speaking to? Are they speaking to the writer, the elephant? Or are they kind of like this rationalist? Uh, oh, absolutely. They're tools? speaking to the elephant. And this is, this I think, is one of the. What part of the elephant? Um, I think. well, it depends really on who exactly they're talking to. Certainly, there's guilt involved, but also yes. there's there's a lot of pride and status. You know, it's a way of signaling status. You know, putting hmm. pronouns in your bio. Um, I don't think it's really just for the purpose of showing solidarity. I think it's also a way of signaling that you're part of a certain community of a, of a certain elite, highly educated community. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 your coat of arms. Um, it's your What's the term I'm looking for? It's your silk yeah, robes. Yeah, it's, hmm. it's 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 a way you know it's it's your uh, it's your expensive watch. It's something that you flash and show people. You know, I belong to this higher intellectual class than the rest of you. I'm not saying that's all there is, but yeah. it's certainly a part of it. There's there's certainly conceit of this kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard Slavoj Zizek give a joke. I think this was maybe in his debate with Jordan Peterson of uh, uh, the synagogue and one of the Jews comes up he's praying he says God forgive me I am nothing I am pitiful I am pathetic please forgive me he sits down another Jew comes up God forgive me I am even more pitiful even more (laughs) pathetic even more (laughs) wretched please please forgive me and then the first Jew stands up and says who the hell does this guy think he is thinking thinking he's nothing and he's less than me I am the least of all of these people so it's it's this kind of this kind of virtue signaling yeah Um, Yeah. you know we're all familiar with, with with this kind of theatrics by now yeah with regards to one thing that I'm trying to maintain awareness of, because I have been concentrating on critiquing wokeness, and uh, I, I think that that kind of melds into a leftism, some form of uh, you know centrality of government, some form of uh, collectivism too. Like there's a bunch of nest of characteristics of what I'm worried about. But how do you yourself not end up aligning yourself with more and more quote unquote far far right? Are you not worried about that? And how do you how do you guard um, from becoming reactionary or radical in the fight against what you perceive as the uh, imminent threat that's uh, rising. Well, I have the benefit of being an immigrant Jew. Um, in fact, uh, my, my family came from the former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, as well as an atheist. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there's certain uh, theocratic and fascistic elements that automatically, I, you know, b- based on my family history and based on my own beliefs, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, that's just not for me. Um, we're, we're yeah. not, we're not going to get along. Well, okay. Could we could we um, venture into a critique of fascism because that's something that's bandied about in the recent shooting in Kenosha. Uh, the, I, I don't want to get too into it, but the person who ended up firing on the people who were apparently attacking him was Hispanic, but he's constantly being called uh, white supremacist. He's constantly yes. being called a fascist. So what is it about fascism that is is wrong or inefficient or that that you think is not tenable for society? What does that ca- why do why do you want to cast that out of the tolerant society and how does it operate? Uh well, for starters, um, I don't think Kyle Rittenhouse is a fascist. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, based on the, the evidence that's available, 
uh, I, I think he acted in self-defense and that his worst offense is a misdemeanor in, in bringing a weapon. I, you know, there may be evidence that comes out later, you know, a manifesto he wrote saying, I want to kill some Black Lives Matter protesters. But until that comes to light, as, as far as I can tell, he, he acted, um, you know, apart from, from uh, you know, having the weapon. Um, he, he acted in self-defense and, you know, having uh, a weapon illegally that, that doesn't uh, disqualify you from being able to use it uh, mm. in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but putting that off to the side, problem with fascism, uh, where, where does one even begin? Should, should I begin with the problems that it poses for the fascist or the problems that it poses for everybody else? Because if I'm talking to the fascist, mm-hmm. you know, let's say I'm talking to the white supremacist, somebody who idolizes Adolf Hitler. You know, why do you love Hitler? Well, you know, I, I want him, you know, I, I want to preserve uh, the white race. Um, and I want to, you know, d- destroy everyone who uh, would harm the white race. And then, you know, my response to the fascist would be, okay, um, can you identify any civilization in history that has caused the death of more white people than Nazi Germany? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, the, hmm. It's 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 unrivaled. Um, hmm. So you know, in, in terms of uh, fascism's, the fascism. I I, I know uh, people are fascism are going to say, des- designed as as some form of racial essentialism that's militant. Is that is that how you're defining fascism? Uh, that, that's a particular type of fascism, but uh, more generally, fascism is is cancerous. In the sense that it destroys the body that it inhabits. Hmm. It creates a state of affairs where uh, the the society, uh, as 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 an organ, as 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 a body, simply isn't able to survive. It 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 has to uh, continually uh, engage in these conquests, and it has to constantly have these altercations with its neighbors uh, by virtue of its intolerance and its paranoia. And the end result is is a waste of a tremendous amount of resources. You know, even as uh, as as the Soviets were marching um, on their way to Berlin and 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 destroying German infrastructure, the trains were still going to Auschwitz, still delivering Jews to be executed. Um, they were still sending ships to private islands to retrieve that one Jew who was on that island to bring them over to have them killed. A tremendous waste of resources that could have been deployed to more productive ends. Um, so I, in the I, I pursuit think, of uh, purity, I guess. Like, yeah, is yeah, that you, the animating principle? Yeah, you 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 waste a tremendous amount of resources, you, you including uh, human resources. Uh, you know, the, the tremendous fraction, well, the, the tremendous number of the people who were killed. Um, you know, would have would have gone on to make great scientific and artistic achievements, uh, great business and entrepreneurial achievements, and Germany. Um, deprived itself of that because uh, because it, it it had this hate for them uh, it, yeah. it basically shot itself in the foot. Um, the consequences of fascism are and always have been self imposed. Huh. Okay. Do you think that it's an actual threat, um, or is this part of the uh, uh, pot boiling the frog to be seeing it and countering it everywhere? By by which I mean the 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 media, the okay. liberal elite. So let's let's distinguish fascism as I've described it, what which we'll call actual fascism, from air quote fascism, which is the fascism okay. that the social justice warrior finds around every corner and under every bed. Uh, so air quote fascism is a boogeyman. 
Uh, it serves the same function as air quote communists served during the McCarthyist era. Uh, it serves the same function as air quote witches served in uh, Salem, Massachusetts. Um, it serves the same function. You know, anytime you, you need to demonize uh, a group, any, anytime you need to divide and conquer in order to, to uh, acquire um, as, acquire as many people into your coalition as possible, you have to have a boogeyman to fight against. You're either okay. with us or you're a boogeyman. White silence is violence. Yes. Is, is that not something that one who is fighting for a center needs to uh, employ, but also be wary of finding the uh, you know the boogeyman, um, finding the the social justice warrior, and how do we how do we maintain integrity with with regards to moving towards tolerance again um, in our in our, you know weeding out the intolerance in our midst? You have to respect truth. Um, however you maneuver, however you argue, whatever political engagements you 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 uh, find yourself in. You know, we, we can't uh, we, we, we have to be honest when we engage. Um, yeah. We have to respect truth when we're when we're, um, you know, engaging with people. We have to really identify, OK, when I'm making this argument, when I am making this political maneuver, am I doing it solely for the purpose of acquiring power? Uh, of course, power is important if you're going to win a culture war. Um, but it shouldn't come at the expense of truth in pursuit of what we regard as freedom and justice uh, and to the inequality of opportunity, uh, we can't kill truth. As long as you do that, I think you won't be, you know, as, as long as you're you're self-critical and reflective, I don't think you'll be in much danger of okay. uh, being paranoid. Okay. Uh, th- this is probably the wrong question to ask somebody of your stature, but what the fuck is truth? <laughs> so, that's, that's a very good question. Truth <laughs> okay, the way I define truth, um, it's a label that we assign to propositions in accordance with a certain set of standards. Now, what exactly okay. those standards are, uh, your mileage will vary depending on the context you're talking about. What constitutes truth in, say, uh, physics? You know, what standards are, are used to, to, to find that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's going to differ from the standards um, when we're asking, you know, uh, when we're evaluating literature, you know, if I'm asking, uh, if, if I'm asking a doctor, what's inside of a person's heart? Um, you know, they can cut the heart open and they can say, okay, here's the left ventricle, right ventricle, blah, 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 blah. But if I ask, uh, you know, the poet, what's inside of a person's heart, they're going to give me a very different answer, um, Mm -hmm. without, you know, they're going to do it using words and, uh, you know whether whether we can properly regard that as truth. Um, I, you know, some people will say yes, other people will say no. You have to have a, a very narrow, only a scientific admission for what constitutes truth. Uh, I'm agnostic on the issue. I, I, don't, I don't go too deeply into it. But for, for for all intents and purposes, truth just means consistent standards in accordance. With, uh, sorry, uh, it, uh, truth means a label that you assign to propositions mm-hmm. yeah. in accordance with a certain set of standards. Yeah. And and so guiding that as some sort of, um, uh, you know, a compass for guiding you in approaching um, or defending or instituting a tolerant uh, society, um, how does truth function in that, in, in trying to get us to um, not you know, fracture and dissolve into riotous chaos uh, like we're seeing now? Well, 
these standards for what constitutes truth can't be anarchistic. It, it can't be that truth is something unique for every person. There has to be uh, some agreement as to what what standards we're going to use to to develop truth, and there are compelling arguments uh, one can follow from different lines. I, I you know for my own part I'm a naturalist. I follow a naturalistic line as to how we can all uh, agree what the truth is and or, or what the standards are we should use for evaluating truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, even if people don't agree with certain premises, or if or if they want to shift things this way and that way, uh, there's there should still be enough overlap for us to say, okay, there's there's this thing that we can identify through family resemblance, and this mm-hmm. this this standards we'll call truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so just for example, what's happening right now with regards to the Black Lives Matter? Um, ideology or idios or a mindset is that they are perceiving a truth that they express as black lives are on constantly systemically on every level at every inch it depends on who you're talking about and what state of agitation they're in but they are presenting a view of the world where black people are constantly under assault and any it seems to be the case that at this point in time, this particular point in time, any argument against that is is discarded or is diminished or or is is openly reviled. How do, how do you pull people back from that ledge that they're driving you, us to? You have you have to take it a step back and have them examine their standards. So when you are arguing with the kind of person you're talking about, they're going to retreat to what we call a phenomenological uh position it is my lived experience that such and such yes. is the truth okay and lived experience you know I've, I've this has been presented to my five senses and uh it's incorrigible only i get to say what i've experienced you don't get to deny what i've experienced yeah <clears throat> and the way you rebut this is to have them realize that being bombarded with these five senses is not the only thing that's going on you know, like we were talking about earlier with the forest and, and how you're not just seeing greens and browns and grays. Your mind is playing an active role in organizing that information. So when you're presented with information like uh, pictures of George Floyd being suffocated or news reports that Kyle Rittenhouse drove across state lines uh, for mm-hmm. the express pro- – you know, you're, you're organizing a certain subset of all of the information that's out there, and you're organizing it in one of innumerable ways in order to generate a theory for what's going on. Mm-hmm. And you have and to from have – from that theory comes that action plan, which is right, what right. we see. Right. Yeah. So, so how, do, how do you challenge this theory? Well, you, you have to say, okay, what, what, what are the standards that we want our models to meet? You know, is it reasonable to omit certain pieces of information – that could be deleterious to the narrative. Is it fair um, to reach for the most uncharitable conclusion um, when information is limited? You know, you, 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 you have to engage in this conversation. And if they're unwilling to have this conversation, if their worldview is not responsive to evidence, if their worldview is not responsive to argumentation, um, again, you're dealing with a dogmatist and you're going to get nowhere. Uh, you, you, you can't waste your time with people who don't want to use their brains, uh, who, who are too vain and too conceited to concede the possibility that they are fallible, they could be wrong, it's possible that they can make mistakes, it's possible that their way of looking at the world isn't the best way, even if 
um, they believe that even if they believe their lived experiences uh, are incorrigible. The, the fact is nobody's lived experiences are incorrigible. Um, mm-hmm. Reality doesn't make itself manifest to us perfectly. There's there's okay. always some filtration going on and there's always some organization taking place. And our job as people who are thinking about uh, these theories, about who, who are thinking about these models, our job is to organize this information uh, in a manner that conforms to certain set of standards. And, you know, what, what these standards are, again, open to some amount of debate and interpretation. Yeah. You yeah. know, in, sci- in science, we're looking for thing- models that uh, have good predictive and explanatory power. Uh, we're looking for rational coherence. You know, th- these, these are certain things we're looking for. Um, what the social justice warrior is looking for um, is a completely different standard. You know, the, the, the person who really understands the ideology, who, who really understands the underlying epistemology that I discussed in my Science Wars series, mm-hmm. uh, it's clear that they're looking for something that facilitates their praxis, something that facilitates the actualization of their utopia. Uh, mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter whether a proposition is true or false in general sense that most people would understand it. If it facilitates um, the actualization of this utopia, if it in some way advances the agenda, then for all intents and purposes, we treat it as true. You may not touch it. It is dogma. Go away, racist. Yeah. 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 I I wonder if it's it seems to be the case that they want to take over what is pre-established. It doesn't seem like they are idealists in the sense that they want to create their own society. They want to kind of take over, well, dismantle the present society and then create a beautiful society in its wake. There's something about it that is not inherently from my perception, uh, you know, proud of itself or proud of its own work. It, it's always uh, projecting onto something outside of itself on every given level. And so I just wonder if it's going to reach a market cap with regards to how many people can actually tolerate it or believe in it. Um, because, and, and I bring up that observation with the thought of how the Evergreen story played out was that Brett Weinstein was able to take the story outside of the control of those who were controlling the story. He went outside of Evergreen. He ended up on Fox News because that was the only place that would listen to this story. But when all of news or the entire narrative is in lockstep, where do we go? How do you take it out? And do you just let it run its course? Um, You... You have to resist the institutions. Um, what we're doing right now on YouTube, um, yeah. you know, d- doing doing this independently, thinking you know, thinking without the permission of our betters, um, mm. we don't need their permission. We can think about these issues. We can look at the evidence, and we can we can come to our determination. If they want to challenge us on this, then please challenge us. Uh, but if they're going to retreat and say, you know, that we're it's that what we're saying is not even worth dignifying with the response, well, we we have to leave that up to the judgment of uh, the casual viewer to decide yeah. uh, for themselves. And and I'm optimistic that uh, people, you know, they they see how how certain people behave. Um, you know, I, I've always said uh, yeah. the greatest uh, creator of the anti SJW is the SJW through their conduct, through their purity spiraling. Uh, through the manner in which they treat everyone who disagrees, including fellow SJWs, uh, who, who they will regularly purge and infight with over the most trivial details, 
this is this is a wonderful way of creating anti-SGWs. They created us. We did not, you know, spawn out of hell. They made <laughs> Literally, us. Literally, I would have not done any sort of YouTube activism if, if it wasn't for the activist college that I went to. They turned me into their worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. We are their bastard children, and we have mm. come to take what's theirs. Which is what? The audience, uh, control sense, of the rationality, narrative. okay, control, control of, the of the narrative, okay. And and if you were able to describe the control of the narrative, what what what's the narrative that what what's the basis of the narrative? I, I I guess it might fit under the concept of liberalism. What what's what's the narrative that you want to capture or to to have capture everybody? So I, I mentioned earlier the narrative that they have of uh people of of marginalized people who are oppressed by their oppressors and who are trying to reclaim authorship uh, over their identity so that they can uh, self-actualize and become authentic. Um, so the narrative that I think we want to achieve, as, as far as I can tell, is a recognition that the world and the people in it are imperfect and always will be imperfect, and that instead of striving uh, toward a utopian state of affairs, we should constantly be trying to search for uh, temporary fixes to temporary problems. Problems are always going, you know, new problems are going to come, mm -hmm. old problems are going to go. Um, there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all solution to society. And mm -hmm. we, we, we have to, I, I think we have to maintain this understanding that uh, there, there, there must be enough ideological space, there, there must be enough um, flexibility for there to be SJW ideology that, you know, we can't purge Marxism and fascism and postmodernism. You know, we, we, we can't just we can't completely um, take these ideas out of the discourse, um, but we can't allow them to dominate it either. We have to take what bits and pieces apply from all of these ideologies and fashion them in a manner that suits uh, the context that we live in. Yeah, yeah. So, so being more practical then, uh, which leads me to one of my observations is that what, what causes the behavior that we see or what excuses the behavior we see with regards to Evergreen and then the protest is that they are not dealing with a human-sized problem. They're not dealing with a human-sized issue. So it ends up causing them to act like superhumans and utter fools at the same time because they think that, that they're striving for justice, they're striving for utopia, they're not you know, going through, this is one policy that we want to change, right? They're not thinking in terms of practicality. They're thinking in terms of, of universal, uh, not healthcare, but I guess dismantling and then recreating. They live in a world where resources are infinite, where time is infinite, and where our ability to allocate time and resources <laughs> is perfect, and where everyone uh, would be exactly the same if not for the evil, corrupt institutions that are corrupting everybody and making them different. Mm -hmm. This is the world they live in. And uh, that's not to say that there is no truth to it. It's not to say that the institutions don't play any role in shaping us. Of course, there is, there is some role they play in shaping us. And of course, to some degree, they do corrupt us. Um, but it's a matter of proportion. There is a crucial ingredient that's missing from their worldview that makes them believe that there are no limitations to uh, their ability to make society into, you know, molded in, into their uh, utopia, and that missing ingredient, as you can probably guess, is human nature. <laughs> Every time, damn Every it! <laughs> we want to save the world if it weren't for that dastardly human nature, <laughs> right? Right. 
this isn't something you can just magic away using the linguistic and discursive mm. uh you know abracadabras of of postmodernism i say um, it manifests more there than anyone anywhere else in fact yeah yeah it's something you have to take account of it's something that you you have to accept as just a constant that we are burdened with and that we have to work around uh in service of various goals we have to take into account thomas Sowell's immortal words there is no such thing as a solution there are only trade-offs yeah yeah, exactly. And that was that was the question that I wanted to ask you. So thank you for setting that up for me. There's always going to be a trade-off. What is what are you willing to sacrifice with regards to another 4 years of Trump in order to uh, you know, forestall or bring to a head the illiberalism in the social justice intersectional left? What what what's the cost that that you see it, we're going to have to pay? Um by you know Trump's administration, well, we're going to uh, have to pay advances in fighting climate change. Um, not necessarily because Trump is a capitalist. I happen to think that there are uh, cap- uh, capitalist ways of addressing uh, climate mm-hmm. change, um, but because the, the guy thinks that it's it's not um, anthropogenic, and uh, yeah, okay. You know, there's there's no uh, real feasible way that 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 he knows of fighting it. Um, you know, uh, hmm. ideally, a person who's close to him might maybe convince him. Uh, who knows? Who knows what will happen in four years? I'm not holding my breath, but that is one trade-off that that may, you know, you, you may have to settle for. Um, let's see, another trade-off. Uh, I, I I imagine that he will be uh, giving institutional support to. Uh, what should we call it? To, 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 to. The, the guy is a populist, you know. The guy recruits his own family members into office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so nepotist. Yeah, there, there, there is nepotism, and you're going to have to uh, accept that as as one of the costs. You know, we're going to have to live in a democracy where there is, you know, blatant corruption. Um, well, we already mm-hmm. live in that democracy. We already have yes. living in that democracy, but where it's more flagrant and more visible. Um, and you, you, this is this is a temporary cost you're going to have to accept. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That do you think that we were ever in a? Is that not just human nature? Do you I, there there could be an argument I see to at least it's being exposed now. Uh, you know, there was always corruption. What, what do you have to say about that? I'm not arguing for that. I, I'm I say that I agree. For you. I, I agree. It, it is yeah. it is constant. There's always some quid pro quo going on in politics. Yeah. Um, I think I think in this case, it's a matter of degree, you know, recruiting okay. your own immediate family members into positions of power yeah. that they're not necessarily, uh, <laughs> you know, suited to handle. I mean, <laughs> that that should raise some eyebrows. I think people who care about democracy, yeah. uh, you know, should should be a bit concerned. But, you know, if it's if if it were the case where, you know, you have another president and they give this position to people who help fund their campaigns, uh Excuse me. You know, that that is corruption as well. But at least the people who they're recruiting um, may may have some expertise in these areas, may may be well suited to these particular areas, which is why they asked for these positions in the first place. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So what if we have to if you were 
recruiting people for Trump and 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 just pointing to his flaws un- unapologetically. Do you think that the flaws that will come through with another four years of Trump uh, worth it? And do you think that there's something that we can recover from? Uh, I guess climate change, uh, the blatant co- corruption, and so on and so forth. Do you think it's 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 a feasible cost, not only worth it, but feasible? Yes, but that it's, it's, it's always going to be expensive. And in any event, uh, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even recommend um, you know campaigning in favor of trump i would i would recommend campaigning against uh this this wokeness nonsense that's that's all i do i i've never said a word in support of donald okay. trump before yeah. i've only well, ever I, yeah. been against our, our mutual opponents and okay so but it, it is the greater evil then the the this advancement of wokeness that's all politics is it's the lesser of two evils Okay, and and you do you think that with a Biden administration, it's pretty certain that it will be more entrenched in in to government? Yes. Do you think that we'll be able to recover from that? Do you think that that why do you think that that's a greater cost than uh, four more years of people there's, screeching about Trump? In in, and in, in principle, there's nothing cities? that you can't recover from. You okay. know, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. former Soviet Union um, recovered at least to some extent. From the Soviet Union, of course, you, you now have a new set of oligarchs at play. Yeah. Um, but the situation in Russia now isn't quite as bad as it was uh, just half a century ago. Hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, fundamentally, yeah, it, there there are going. It is going to be expensive, not just in terms of money, but in in terms of the resources, in terms of the careers that are going to be lost, in terms of the lives mm-hmm. that are going to be ruined. Uh, you know, again, you have you have to weigh it in terms of costs and benefits, in terms of trade-offs, rather than in terms of solutions. You are never going to be able to completely annihilate SJWs. You're never going to be able to live in a world where there is no wokeness. You're never going to come to a time where everybody agrees with common liberal principles. There are always going to be people who agitate against it. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes some of their recommendations um, should be uh, co-opted, and and some of and they should be addressed by liberalism. But much of the time, since they're being issued from radical corners who have a very romantic and and very uh, mm-hmm. non-pragmatic view of reality, they should they should kind of just be dismissed uh, af- yeah. after they've been debunked. Yeah, and somehow they got into the they, they're the ones who are driving the temperature of the water. Somehow, it seems to me. Yes, yes. The, the the story of how they came to control the institutions is a very interesting one, uh, and one that I've I think there's there's a fundamental piece of the puzzle that everybody's missing, pertaining to the corp. It's the corporatization of the academy. It's turning the university yeah. into a business model, mm-hmm. um, where students are the customers. I think, and and when you consider the dispositions of students, when you consider. Um, you know, what kind of character the typical 18, 19, 20-year-old has, yeah. um, and, and and this ethos of the customer is always right. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's much of a you know, I, I, I'm seeing flashbacks to evergreen in your eyes. I think you can you can probably guess where this goes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take us there. <laughs> yeah, they're catering to that idealistic 20-year-old, we can change the world customer. Yes. Wow. Hmm. Do you think that it's recoverable? Do you think that uh, with regards to the academy, uh, what, what do you see it playing out as? Do you think that that's uh, – So the situation with the academy stuff. is that after the Cold War, all of these government contracts for uh, scientific research, for example, 
um, they kind of went away. There wasn't really as much of a need for them now that we weren't really competing with the Soviet Union. We became the world's only superpower. Yeah. And uh, this meant that we had to get our source of funding from somewhere. Uh, knock, knock. Who is it? It's us, the neoliberals. We have this wonderful thing called the free market, and we think that it should be applied to the university. Uh, let's institute um, university presidents who take home six-figure salaries, you know, mm-hmm. $400,000, $600,000 salaries. And in exchange, they're going to hook you up with all kinds of investors who are going to help fund your research where before the U.S. government was doing all the funding. Okay, yeah. great. Um, what's Well, we need other revenue streams as well. Yes, that's right. It's going to come from the students. Oh, cool. So how do we get as many students in as possible? We want to increase our revenue streams. Let's decrease the standards. Decrease the standards. Okay, got it. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways we can do that is we can introduce these bullshit disciplines um, that are going to act as a kind of a safety net for uh, the worst students, students who oh. would not have graduated otherwise. They're going to go. I can down. see that being not intentional. I can see that the the market forces just kind of boosting up feminism and the critical race set because they're just like they're bringing in and entertaining students, right? Yeah, kind of in a focus group method. Yeah, yeah, but 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 this this contributes to it as well. Um, you know, if, if you if you follow students, you know, if you, if you look at how standards have declined over the years with, with things like grade inflation and yeah. you measure the quality of the students that are coming into the academy versus the quality of the students coming in before, um, you would say there's been a notable decline in the quality and the extent to which it's declined uh, approximately fits the extent to which uh, students are filtering into these bullshit disciplines. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if you've ever been in like <laughs> – a gender studies or Chicano studies course, but you know, you, you basically half your grade um, comes from mm. from demonstrating that you have a pulse. You know, just just show up to class. The, there's there's half your grade, and then yeah. the remaining half you regurgitate um, your yeah. your professor's beliefs back to them. Hmm. Um, in Heather McDonald's book, The Diversity Delusion, she was citing this one story about this kid who got into um, into an institute, into a fairly prestigious institution through affirmative action, and he was failing all of his courses because of because of the mismatch problem, um, except for Black Studies. That was the one course that he got an A in. Everything else he was failing and, and getting D's. And I think this kind of reflects the situation with a lot of these these bullshit majors. Uh, they act, they function as a safety net. Uh, I, that's not necessarily the purpose for which they were created. Um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. you know they're good for the university. They allow the university to inflate its graduation rates to artificially inflate that. Um, and of course, you know you send uh, public relations agents out into uh, into high schools to publish materials that say, yeah, uh, if you don't go to college and get a degree in college, you know, regardless of whether or not you know what your major is going to be, regardless of whether or not you have your life figured out, if you don't. Go to college. You're working in McDonald's for the rest of your life. This is the message. Exactly. We, this is the message that we communicate to people uh, in high school. So they come to college. They have no idea what they want to do. Oh, look, an easy class where I get an easy A. Yay! I got a dopamine hit. I'm good at something. Maybe I should major in this. All right, I got my mm. degree. What am I going to do for for money now? Oh shit! Um, I, I don't have any options. Okay, I'll make an OnlyFans account. This is all capitals capitalism's fault. You know, you you, mm. can, you can kind of see how how this how this problem. But uh, possibly emerges. Yeah, yeah. How do you think that that's going to be righted? Do you trust the market on that? No, no. Education, education is is not something 
you know, like I said earlier, I don't believe there's such a thing as a one-size-fits-all solution uh, okay. to society, and that includes the market. The market, I don't believe, is, is a magical one that you can just wave it at a problem and, you know. Just wait for a bubble to burst. <laughs> yeah. Problem begun. <laughs> the academy is one of those things. Okay. I think you need a uh, return to standards. You need the installation mm. of organs into the academy to serve, excuse me, to serve as quality control mechanisms. Oh, um, shit. Yeah, all the accreditation, uh, you know, scan. Not, it's not a scandal. It should be. Like, the, the way that these colleges get their accreditation, it's just like they self-report. Yeah. It seems to be. At least I yeah. know that is the case with Evergreen. Yeah. And and look at you know look at the output of professors in the grievance studies field. H- have you looked at um, real peer review lately? It's complete shit. Yeah. Is it is it not even shit worth commenting on? Is that like how shitty it's getting? It's just like it's not even clever shit anymore. Is that do you think that that is what's going to happen? Like. Uh... So I have a YouTube video called Specious. I, I should have sent this to you over email. Specious. Where I just, yeah, where I just look at the uh, at peer-reviewed papers and, and just play uh, that song Razzle Dazzle from the uh, play Chicago. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Give them the old Razzle Dazzle. You know, and I just I just display all of these these shit papers. And you know yeah. this 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 is what your tax money is going to. This is what your kids are paying tuition for. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, okay. their tuition money doesn't go to the salary of professors, but uh, it does subsidize their research, and they do get paid to research. Now, can we do some air quotes about the research or yeah. the word yeah. research? Okay. Yeah, quote unquote research. Okay. Research. They, they they sit in an armchair, they look down at their belly buttons, and they divine <laughs> how the world works. <laughs> it's like a Ouroboros that feeds feeds on belly button lint. So what's the answer then? So so exposition, exposing it then, uh, allowing for, I, I guess, uh, with regards to all these bullshit degrees, I don't think there'll be any lawsuits or anything. It's just uh, the, the next generation is going to be told by their parents, don't go to the college. Like, is is I guess, do we uh, trust that the reputation will eventually degrade so much that it will no longer be worth anything? So that's one question that I've, I've been considering for a while now you know what happens to the universities eventually this bubble is going to burst there are going to be enough students getting shit degrees uh that don't prepare them for for a professional career um and who end up defaulting on their student loans and you know what's what's going to happen to the universities you know are are they going to have to break up and become privatized completely you know right now they're only partially privatized for through the corporatization um but Mm -hmm. you know the, the the process um, you know, you you can you can imagine what a, like a like a corporation university looks like, like a fully corporatized university, one that has like a board of directors and stockholders and things like that. You know, okay. and and what the and limitation HR departments in every other room. Maybe who knows? Um, <laughs> you know, but but fundamentally, the function of a corporation is to grow and make money. So we'll okay. we'll. You know, and and what gets researched? Um, well, we're not going to research black holes. That's not profitable. That's just something we do uh, to advance human knowledge. We're not going to uh, research, uh, I don't know, uh, a psychoanalytic reading of Shakespeare or Hamlet or or, the, or Shakespeare or or uh, 
fuck, why, why am I blinking? Chaucer or, or okay. any number of authors, you know, yeah, things. Sure. You know, okay. we're, 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 we're the, the arts and that subset of the sciences that don't necessarily um, advance any business interests, any, any, any financial interests, you know, these are not necessarily going to be covered by these corporations. Occasionally, you'll get the odd um, SpaceX, but, you know, th- mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the exception, not the rule, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. So I, I am concerned about what happens to the universities. Um, so you, of, you think that it, it should be you, you advocate for a, a liberal arts uh, university that is, is not um, proving itself according to profit, but proves itself according to some other metric of the value of knowledge that it's producing? Yes. And there there is even a place in such a university for critical race theory, for postmodernism, you know, w- yeah. within reason. Um you know, it, it can't get out of control the way it is right now. Uh, there has to be an organ of quality control in place more than what we have right now with peer review. Because right now, certain peer review journals are just functioning as madrasas <clears throat> to legitimize the ideology through what um, yeah. Brett Weinstein calls idea laundering. I don't know if you've heard yeah. this term. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've laundered many an idea through Brett Weinstein. <laughs> Well, a couple puns. Every once in a while, he'll retweet me. But yeah, I'm familiar with his concept. So organs of quality control, that seems to be uh, just looking at our discourse right now. I think that like one sustained something that guides you is this. uh, Like when I asked you about truth, you defaulted to standards. When I asked you about how to save the colleges you you default to a a quality control mechanism some sort of uh some sort of uh feedback uh mechanism um is that's built into different institutions uh i guess like a corporation uh is proved by the market science is proved by the quality of knowledge that it produces um perhaps even uh society can be gauged or a, a social movement can be gauged by the quality of behavior it produces right so is that is is quality like the kind of the guiding principle um yeah 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 and it, it is important to, to have standards for these things and, and not to let them get out of control mm-hmm you know, when, so, when, we're, when we're doing science, for example, we're, we're trying to achieve a certain goal. We're trying to predict and explain phenomena. Yeah. When the artist is engaging uh, in an activity, you know, art is subjective. Anything can be art. Fine. Uh, but not yeah. anything, anything, right? Uh, you, you know, the, 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 there are still standards um, within different mediums mm-hmm. that, are, that are generally accepted. Even even if people shirk these standards and they say, "Oh, this isn't real. I'm gonna I'm gonna subvert these standards and create something new and better," and then they, you know, put a toilet uh, in the museum and call it art. Like, you know, the... <sighs> sorry, I'm still upset about that one. <laughs> Not about Ducomp, but like that people are still talking about it. Like that's the shittiest part about it. That art art teachers are still teaching about that. Like shut the fuck up about the fucking toilet already. It was clever in nineteen twenty or whenever it was thirteen. I can't yeah. remember the day. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, you know, if you ask a person what art is, you know, ask ask three artists what art is. You're going to get four different answers. Yeah. So one of one of them's one one of them's going to change his mind halfway through. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it seems that um not to psychoanalyze you but it seems like you're very rooted in scientific uh, appropriation of the truth or or 
travel toward the truth. But you give room for the humanities. You give room, you make room in, uh, in your worldview for these other facets of, of human life. Why yeah, do you I think, think that, how, do you, how did you get to the point where you're trying to balance those things? Well, I, I think fundamentally we have to recognize that science and the humanities serve different functions. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to really simplify it, I would say science gives us the means to live our lives you know, comfortably and, 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 and fruitfully. And the humanities give us the reasons to live our lives. Mm-hmm. They give us a justification to live. Hmm. That's not well, to say that the sciences don't have their own you know, beauty then, and that that can serve as its own justification. And that's not yeah. to say that the humanities might not be able to tell us anything about how the world works. Um, hmm. But that, that, that the core functions do differ. And so the standards uh, may end up having to differ. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Do you think that your YouTube is a kind of an intersection of that? Like uh, the appeal to people and, and uh, the, the, like trying to inspire people to adore uh, art or science, that is, like to, to have a, a human reaction to the pursuit of truth? Sure, sure. You know, a, a lot of fruitful uh, science is inspired by art, and a lot of fruitful art is inspired by science. These things, mm. the, the, there is dialogue between these things. Mm-hmm. Do you have something special planned for the future with regards to uh, your capacity of being King Crocoduck, if I'm pronouncing that correctly? What's next on his plate? King Crocodile's play. Oh man! At some point, I'm gonna have to make Quantum Theory Made Easy Part Three. God uh, damn it! <laughs> wait, wait, how many parts are there? Like, like two? Oh, I mean, but is there a finite amount of uh, episodes and trying to make it easy? Uh, between five and six. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so, have you mapped that kind of out, and and it's uh, kind of yeah, in there? Yeah. The, the third one is difficult in terms of execution because this is where all of the crazy math comes in. And, oh. uh, you know, quantum mechanics is is intuitively indecipherable at a certain level. At some point, you just have to throw your hands up and do the math and see that the math works. And oh. to a general audience, that's not going to work. So I'm, yeah. I'm trying to square the circle. I'm trying to make it intuitive yeah. enough for people to understand without losing what the math actually says is going on. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Deepak Chopra like uh, quandary. You're trying to get people to understand it without totally understanding it and abusing it like he does in a way. Because uh, to, to, he, he uses, uh, it seems like people in his uh, you know, wheelhouse use the indecipherability of quantum mechanics to project a bunch of bullshit onto it. And what you're trying to do is kind of square the circle in, in the fact of trying to make it less bullshitty in a way, even though it's indecipherable. So, so it's not that, that quantum fair? mechanics are indecipherable. Um, okay. It's just that you have to have uh, you, ha- you have to reach a certain level of math that most people haven't reached in order okay. to, to really grasp what's going on. Um, and once you grasp it at the mathematical level, you see it's very difficult to translate that into an intuitive picture of what's going on. And that does allow people like Deepak Chopra to come along and okay. and, abu- and talk, do the kind of abuse you're referring to. I'm not yeah. a fan of Deepak Chopra, as you might know. I, from I my picked ch- that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I. I. I really care about you know presenting this information as accurately and and faithfully as i can but also Mm -hmm. you know it it has to be done in a way that people understand and 
when the quantum mechanics is spoken in the language of linear algebra and partial differential equations, it, it can be tricky. Mm. I, yeah, I don't even know. I, I kind of like had a hard time even paying attention to those last four words you said. Differential something. I don't know. You lost me there. Partial differential equations. <laughs> um, do, are you uh, like in the math, physics, uh, whatever, like sciences, like what's your first love with regards to uh, the hard sciences? What's what's the your first love? Well, when I was in college, my first love was astronomy uh, and astrophysics. Hmm. Um, and then I saw the job market for that. And very quickly, I broke up and moved on oh. to <laughs> particle physics. Um, oh. And then the, I saw the job market for that, and we broke up as well. <laughs> and then oh, I went you, on. Go ahead. Are you trying to? You're fine. You're trying to find a middle ground. Yeah. It, it seems like you went. Yeah. Really so high, then I really found low. I found computational biophysics and it was great. It was it was theoretical physics and I was making new stuff and there mm. were no um you know I, I I I had all of this beautiful mathematical and computational frameworks but they didn't manifest in any real world consequences. There was no experimentation going on. So I broke okay. up with that as well and moved on to oh. Biomedical physics, which is which, okay. which does strike the balance between theory and experiment, and does so in ways that affects uh, people's lives in, in a yeah. manner that I find fulfilling. Okay, wow. Um, yeah, it seems like like I, I have a picture of like a bouncy ball. You started really high, you went really low, and then you kind of like you found like this nice porridge that's not too cold, not too hot, and and you get to interact with the human situation. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Mm. And the physics are interesting, too. That's important. You have to love the science because you're stuck with this job for 40 years. Oh. Uh, so, wow. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm going to, I guess, I, I think we're done. Uh, I, with the recording, I'm going to stop the recording. Did you have, like, a one more, like, salient bit of wisdom? Um, do the reading. Uh, which which reading? We're talking about uh, the Whatever fragile... it is you're talking about. When, when you're okay. engaged in any argument, um, know your opponent's position better than they do. Do the reading. Yeah. Okay. It could be a coffee mug. I'm going to stop the recording. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at... Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.